episode of Hip Hop Social Worker. I'm your host, Christopher Scott. Uh, Hip Hop Social Worker is in partnership with C4 Communities of Color. If you're looking for our clinicians of color, if you're looking for a clinician of color or your clinician of color yourself and you want to build in our community, go to c4pdx.com to see how you can get involved with that. Uh, so this morning, um, I have a guest with me, um, Ann Jay. That's how you say your name, right? No, my name is it's pronounced Anya. Anya, like my Anya bad. See, I'm fucking up. <laughs> uh, Anya, um, Anya is the person uh, we connected through um, email, and uh, I just wanted to sit down and she can explain more than I can explain about her. But uh, you want to go ahead and tell the people a little bit about yourself? Okay, hello everyone. My name is Anya Anderson. Um, I am a licensed social worker here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm originally from Trenton, New Jersey. Um, grew up in a single mother household with my two older brothers, and I'm the youngest of three. Um, before I came into the, the field of social work, I originally wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I majored in criminal justice after taking some courses in sociology, psychology, human services field, and talking to the dean of my department, who was also a social worker. Um, I decided to go into sociology because we didn't have um, a social work major for our, our school. I went to Lincoln University in undergrad. Um, so I decided to double major in sociology and criminal justice. Uh, I finished my MSW degree at Clark Atlanta University um, in 2014. So I'm yeah, some HBCU made. Nice. All right, so... Um so you said you wanted to be a lawyer. What happened with that? Ooh. <laughs> well, <clears throat> as I said, as I stated before, um, I started taking like human services fields and also taking like psychology, sociology. I just started getting real interested into like helping other people. Um, I also always help other people. Like that's what I grew up seeing. You know, yeah. behaviors are learned. So I always saw my mom and my father both working in the human service field, helping other individuals or, or going to work with them um, and seeing how it affect their lives and our lives and how helping the individuals, you know, made them become more successful or more progressive towards what they wanted to be or be individual without any help. Um, or not individual, more independent. Also, I got pregnant my last year in the, of undergrad. So it was like, I don't got time for law school. I think social work looking real nice right now. So yeah. that's what I'm more into because I really didn't have the time to go into law because I had a child and a mouth to feed. Okay. Um, how was, so I didn't go to a, um, HBCU. I went to school in Oregon. So if you can imagine there's no HBCUs here. How was that um, experience? a great experience to go to school with other people that look like myself um as when i was growing up i went to private school so i went to private school so a lot of times i was in classrooms like with other two or three african-american people i wasn't in classroom with where everyone looked like our, our, like me yeah um you know and i went to preschool i want to take it back i went to pre my aunt um who attended Rutgers and is an educator. She did have a pre-K school um, from two and a half to five years old, which was during, you know, the pan-African pan mm. movement. Yeah. So she taught a lot about Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, um, Sojourner 
um, Harriet Tubman, she, you know, she would teach us those things. And I went to her school, so I was used to learning around other individuals that looked like my, myself from two and a half to about six. And then my mom switched it and sent me to Baptist private school where all the teachers look, did not look like me. Mm-hmm. So um, I went to HBCU because of that because I felt like I needed to be around people that looked like me when I was learning and so that we can bounce off each other. So that was a very, very, very good experience. It provided um, a good network. So now that I'm in my career, I can go back to people I went to school with, like an undergrad and grad school, and see what they're doing and they're building their careers and they're entrepreneurs and we can collaborate. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate going to school um, at HBCU. Yeah, yeah. My uh, one of my homies, uh, he's also a social worker. He got his undergrad um, at Tuskegee, and he said that he just he just loved that experience, and it kind of really um, shaped his um, his practice and really how he sees the world. So, I just, I'm yeah, like, it, it does. It does because when um, a lot of people don't know that when I first went to pursue my MSW, I started at Rutgers University. Yeah. Um, and it was just me and two other African-American people in the class. I went to a, I was in a, um, in a cohort and it was for professionals who were already in like the social work and human service field. So we went to school online and then we went to school two weekends out of the month. And then you find yourself being the subject matter expert for all, any <laughs> diversity, any minority. Mm, yeah. <laughs> And then, we, and then when you hear your counterparts, you know, interpretation of certain things or they express their feelings of certain things, you in there feeling some kind of way because oh, you're yeah. like, do you hear yourself talking? Like, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, we went through that uh, in my... Uh under my, my grad school program uh, just um, it was only about maybe four people of color in the program maybe a little bit more than that but like only me, me and, and, and my homie was the only black people in there are the only black males in there and you would I mean you know like you know they always say like the intent was good but you just say stuff and it's like did you really just say that you know could you could you back it up yeah, a little I, bit I think I said something I said something to my co-worker I was like after a while your ignorance becomes disrespectful mm. You know, you know, yeah. ignorance is the, is the fact of not knowing. I think she asked the question of, "What is Jim Crow?" Or I never heard of that. Or you know, she would say odd things, and I would like, be like, "Listen to her, like, you you never heard of Jim Crow law? You, you're not aware of civil rights, yeah. for real?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's find that hard to believe. You know what I'm saying? But if you but if you never heard of that, then you know, let's let, let's talk about how how privileged that is that you never. You know that you lived in such a, a bubble that you never ever heard of that. That's a trip. I never heard nobody say they never heard of that. But yeah, she never heard of Jim Crow. Uh, I, was, I, I charged her. I gave her an African American encyclopedia because I was <laughs> explaining to her like, how do you expect to be able to service the senior citizen community? Like she wanted to work with the elderly. Yeah. So how are you? How do you expect to, you know, to service someone that was born before 1951? Yeah. If you're not even you don't you're not even educated on Jim Crow because he might not be looking at you in the eyes because when he was growing up he couldn't look white woman in the eyes. Mm-hmm. But if you if you're not aware of that you're gonna take it as oh he has no eye contact um, mm-hmm. he's the pet he's guarded but no you yeah. know as he favor when we get older we revert back to how we grew up. Mm-hmm. We revert to the beginning. It's, it's a, it's a comes full circle. So if you don't understand the basis of how a person is 
their actions, then how can you expect to help them? That's real. I mean, that's yeah. Cause you gotta you, like if you don't have that information, like just like you said, you know, like you might take his um, you know, his lack of eye contact as disrespect. He's withdrawn. I don't know what's wrong with him. He, you know, and then that could be a diagnosis somewhere. So, mm-hmm. so then yeah. we come into the play of mixed diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Like you really not being culturally competent enough to understand, you know, the you know, some as small as lack of eye contact, you know. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's yeah, that's deep. But uh, so, um, what kind of things do you do in your practice today? Um, I provide individual therapy um, mm-hmm. to all everyone. Everyone, it could be any race, any, yeah. any gender. Uh, most of the most of my my clientele are dealing with depression, um, adjustment disorder, anxiety. Um, I have some that may be borderline and maybe like one or two clients that's borderline um, and a couple clients that have schizophrenia just you know just to have them interacting because a lot of schizophrenia patients don't like to interact with groups yeah so you got to kind of get them on an individual so they can kind of understand um, the difference between reality and mm-hmm. delusion and their hallucinations so yeah that's what I really deal with I really like to deal with um, women Okay. Who are going through life transition That's where adjustment disorder come in You know they might be going through unemployment They might be becoming a new mom Divorce, breakup New jobs, fresh out of college New yeah. city Those kind of things Okay um, How do you go about like uh, building that practice up or, or do you work for an agency Okay, so how how my practice came about is, you know, beforehand I was working at on an inpatient unit, um, and one of the one of the, the well the big one of the biggest um, healthcare facilities here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of partnered my practice has been able to sustain itself because I kind of partnered with a psychiatrist, so he does more of the medication monitoring, and then I do more of the therapy. Okay. Um, I also have a space out of his office, and that's how I get a lot of my referrals or you know I still do um, work at the hospital as a psych assessor and so sometimes you know I may come in contact with an individual who's looking for a therapist and I may tell them oh you know this is where my office is and then my counterparts you know co-workers that you work with before they refer clients to me um, off this inpatient units that need that may benefit from therapy and medication monitoring yeah Okay. But not all my patients, not all my patients actually are on medication. Some, a lot of them are just have therapy. Like they've come to a psychiatrist's office and he'll say, well, you know, let's just try therapy. And then he just refers them to me. Mm. Okay. So, oh, my bad. So, yeah. So, okay. I, I, that, that just makes sense. I never thought about um, teaming up with a, a psychiatrist, you know, because I do know, like, um, I mean, for, you know, people who really don't know, like this. A simple way to explain it is that, like, you know, we talk about therapy. A psychiatrist can give meds. A social worker can't, you know what I'm saying? But but so far as, like, therapy, we do the same thing, essentially, you know. So I feel that. That's, that's well, what's different? Go ahead. What's different about my psychiatrist is that he usually does. He's not the, what, I, what I've observed is he's not the, the, your typical or traditional psychiatrist. You know, your typical, typical psychiatrist may spend about 20, 30 minutes with you and give you medication. Well, he actually likes to sit down and talk to his clients. Yeah. 
So he was doing therapy and med monitoring. And it became, he had such a, a large client base, it became overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So he had a need for a therapist because he couldn't see. He has over 200 clients. He couldn't see all those clients and talk to them. Yeah. Okay. So, That's what's up. He had to he had to contract out. So you know we formed the contract. Um, I'm able to see his clients, and I'm able to see my clients. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, I know in this world of like therapy and stuff, it's not really like a um, of like a, there's not like a concrete way of like success or like a look of success. You know what I'm saying? But like we, you know, when you work with clients, you know, like some bodies might look different than others. So um, in your practice, how do you gauge what success looks like? As far as, um, as, far as like, um, you know, for, well, for me, um, how I gauge success is not about the money I make. It's always about the, my results. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, what we're as in prison, we have the recidivism rate. So I, I judge it based on my recidivism rate. How many people are coming back to schedule appointments? Yeah. How many people are actually, you know, seeing visible changes in their behaviors because of them coming and attending therapy? So that's how I would, I would, I would judge my success. And I think that's how we all should judge our success. Not about how much money we're making, but more as how many, how many recidivism, how many people come back through our doors, how many continue to make appointments, and they have scheduled appointments. Like every Tuesday, you see in Mary at one o'clock. That means you are being successful in what you're doing in your delivery and your approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what's up. Uh, I mean, I feel like I feel that that, that is a a great way because, like, you know. Like, when we get into this field, you know what I'm saying, like, um, yeah, it'd be nice to, you know, have, like, all the all the bells and whistles, but you really, like, the core of it is to help people, you know? So, like, if what I'm doing isn't really helping, you know, like, it's either, like, we sit down and really figure out why, or is it, like, or, or maybe we're not a good match, you know what I'm saying? Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe let's try to figure some of us out because, you know, like, I mean, the core of this work is for our communities to look better, you know? Not for mm-hmm. us to really, you know, not for us to look like we all that. <laughs> and I and I like that you said that, um, saying that we're not a good match because a lot of times as therapists, social workers, clinicians, we we tend not to refer out. If you know that you that's not your specialty, and that and it's not a good match, you know, be be open and honest. I'm sure that you have plenty of colleagues that will, will appreciate the referral. So if I get somebody and I know I'm not a good match for them or maybe it's a conflict of interest, I don't shy away from referring out. I hit up my colleagues like, do you take this insurance? Could you see this client? This is a conflict of interest. This client is dealing with trauma. I know you specialize in trauma. You know, I don't really particularly like to deal with kids all that much. I don't like to have too many kids on my own clientele. So I'm going to refer out. Yeah. But a lot of people shy from doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know, like, me, like, working, like, um... In like nonprofit, like in the nonprofit world, for you know, for a few years, um, I know that we had a lot of uh, kids that we worked with that shouldn't have been there, but because you need to fill those beds, you keep going, you know. And I know, yeah, it's not the best practice, but you know, on the other flip, they was they was trying to keep the doors open. So th- that was like a, that was the tricky part. It was like shit, like you know, like we can't really. You know, like this kid shouldn't be here, but at the same time, you know, our referral list isn't really booming. So, yeah. So I'm glad that you like you have the 
you know, the wiggle room, you know what I'm saying, to, like, be able to move and shake and be like, all right, well, this ain't really, um, this ain't really working out, so let's move on. That's, 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 and that's, and that's the best. And that's the best thing about having a private practice versus working at, for a company or a nonprofit is because you have that wiggle room. I mean, that's what I like. I like to be able to choose what and who I'm going to service. You know, when you're working for a company or an agency or a nonprofit, you really don't get the choice. Yeah. Even if, as you know, sometimes as a clinician, a therapist, a social worker, dealing with certain individuals or different clientele or population makes you feel uneasy and uncomfortable. Yeah. But but you still have to do it because you you work for somebody. Yeah, that's true. You know, I remember um, when I when I I first started um, in um, like you know, the one-on-one field, and that job pushed me to kind of be more outspoken because if I were to sit back and kind of let the kind of uh, systematic shit go on, I'd have I'd, ruined, I'd ruined at least one life, you know what I'm saying, that I can remember in my brain because I remember... Um, yeah, they was just ragging on this kid, and he was the only black kid in the, you know, in the program. And they was just saying oh, he was aggressive, he was mean, and stuff. But it's like nobody else looked like him. Like, like even though we got Hispanic kids, but it's like it, it's a group of them too. So it's not like you know, like, like you know, like. So like, I feel like their racism was shaded, or you know, like. You know, because they wasn't like because like oh well we know you know like these kids are are doing well, you know but it's like but these kids have a group of each other you know what I'm saying it's a group of white kids and a group of black kids and a few gay kids or not a group of black kids a group of Mexican kids and and there's a few gay kids but he's the only black kid and you guys are like just not really understanding why he's not fitting in you know like why he doesn't feel like he belongs here and he's not leveling up and he's not um you know doing all this achievement stuff because he just doesn't he's an outsider. And I had to speak for him so much that like I had to quit the job. Like I just because it was just you know. But when he you know you know before I left, I discharged him. You know because I knew that he wasn't going to succeed in that program. But I had to do that. Yeah, and you know that's that's how we come down with um, systematic oppression and institutionalized oppression. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, for the listeners that don't know, could you explain what systematic oppression? Um, institutionalized to me, institutionalized oppression is that when you feel oppressed within a system, mm-hmm. so you know you are be, you become the mind. Not only are you a minor, you become a, mind, a double minority. Come to say, so not only are you a minority because of the culture and your race, but then you're a minority in 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 on in top of. I mean, within an institution. So you're at an institution that's supposed to be supposed to help you, but now you feel oppressed because now I'm feeling a certain kind of way, mm-hmm. or my, or I'm feeling emotional, or I'm acting behavioral because I'm in a new surrounding around all Mexican or all white people or all you know just others, yeah. something that I'm not used to. And then you're you the institution that that stays to help you. They don't want to understand where you're coming from when you say, "I I don't like being in that situation," or it feels feel uncommon or different to me, or it makes me feel a certain kind of way. They want you just to forget about it, mm-hmm. and they want to upset your feelings and just move on with that's just their rules. These are our rules and regulations. 
we're not even going we're not even going to identify or acknowledge that this is how you're feeling because of our rules and regulations yeah so now the rules and regulations have me feeling oppressed mm-hmm yeah that's a good way to explain it because I feel like you know, like right now, I do a lot of work. I'm trying to like, um, you know, you know, my current role. I work with the school system, and we're trying to revise uh, some of those policies. You know, what I'm saying that's causing those systematic results. You know, like a lot of black kids filling out, and kids of color filling out. You know, different kids of color filling out, but. You know, it's hard when the system doesn't really want to change. You know, like yeah. you know, like the gatekeepers I mean, of the system. How, how can a system that was built to help you? Not help you. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. So you you were built on basis and, and supposed to be value core values to help me. Mm-hmm. That that's a lot of a lot of things that happen to at risk youth. At risk youth go into different programs that are built to help them, but sometimes they're not culturally aware. Yep. And don't understand, you know, how cultural diversity affects the person's behavior and their emotions, and so now they're not reaching that 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 youth. Mm-hmm. You can help as many youth as you want, but then you might have one or two to come in and you're not even able to help them because you're not willing to empathize in regards to how they feel. Yeah. And it's, and I'm sure, you know, like, I'm sure if you look at the pattern of you, if you don't help, I'm sure there's probably, there's probably, um, you know, some, some similarities. <laughs> you feel me? Yes. Uh, so, um, I know there's a huge, uh, there's a huge movement for people of color and, you know, Every um, you check their mental health, you know. So, but in in history, there's been um, it's sort of a disconnect, you know. Um, what do you think was the cause of that? Um, you know, uh, that shift of like of people like you know like of, of people of color not really feeling, you know, going to therapy things like that. Okay, so I don't want to sound cliche mm-hmm. when I say this. But I think the disconnect started way before, like, our time. Okay. Way before I was born. I think the disconnect started in regards to, like, slavery. Okay. Um, in regards to all the, you know, Tuskegee, Alabama experiment. You know, it, it, it created a distrust. And in the healthcare field, like, historically, it was predominantly Caucasian, white, however you want to identify them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we come in, like, any culture, like, any minority, like, whether it be Hispanic, whether it be African-American, whether it be Asian, Japanese, Chinese, we already come in, in the mis- with a mistrust. Yeah. You know? Um, so I think it started back then. Um, also, as a as a, and I'm going to speak on the African American culture. You also can th- also can relate it back to um, we have a lot of issues with secrecy, um, and I think that was built into like when you know when the welfare reform. You know, even when we think of housing complexes, the, what we consider projects, that, that came in about where we were taking the fathers out of the home, with the fathers in the home, somebody couldn't get, you know, a family may not be able to get certain help or assistance if the father was in the home. I think that it comes and it stems from that. You know, we we were taught as uh, as individuals, as kids. You know, you always heard your mom or your grandma say, "Don't tell nobody what's going on in my house. Don't tell my business." Mm-hmm. So we so it created um, an atmosphere to where, in our culture, we didn't want to reach out and ask for help. Yeah. 
And then historically, we as African American community, like if you think about what gangs, how gangs were derived, it was derived to help the culture. It wasn't until later on that it began to tear our communities down. Yeah. And so I feel that, you know, we as an African American culture, we used to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so because, you know, of inter- no, we're, the schools are no longer segregated, we're integrated, you know, we're no longer helping our, ourselves. And because we're used to helping ourselves as a community, we con- we tend not to ask for help. Yeah. Um, so where it goes in and then we used to, and then we can look into like our spiritual roots and our religion how we used to like oh no we just gonna take it to Jesus and we just gonna pray about it but now it's becoming more common to where we can also pray and I'm also gonna go to therapy and I'm gonna talk about it yeah. so I think that's what disconnect come into it's like not just one single thing it's just multiple things and multiple layers um, that we have dealt with as an African American culture mm. yeah I know um I interviewed my mom for like on one of the first episodes, and she was getting some uh, some backlash from some of her siblings saying that she was putting too much business out in the street, <laughs> you know. So, so I definitely know about that, you know, like about that culture of like being in the house. You know what I'm saying? Like keep all your stuff inside the house. Don't let it leave the house. You know. But I mean, like, in to a certain extent, I get that. But if we keep it all in the house. Then there's some stuff that's going on in the house that need to be talked about, you know. So, so I feel like you miss all that, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um, so um, how does social work look in Atlanta or in the Georgia, you know, the area you work at? Because I know in Oregon, social work is it's pretty. I mean, like we're as a state, Oregon race relations are pretty like they're pretty weird. You know, because the state is, you know, like it was founded by, you know, settlers that really was trying to look for another like white um, place. You know, what I'm saying like outside the South. So, so we still had those kind of policies, and we still had the relations that kind of like make things a little like uneasy. So, so we have a lot of equity work. We also have a lot of like trauma informed work, like uh, like in the rural communities where there's not a lot of people of color. Um, we focus on poverty stuff, you know, so how to get people out of poverty. So um, I just ask, like, you know, because I'm always curious how social work looks in other states and areas. So how's it looking at, in Atlanta? Okay, so I, I think I think I, the first half of the question I had missed, um, but I think I kind of get what you're asking me mm-hmm. um, in regards to how to, in regards to, like, how does social work or clinician or therapy look here now? Um, and most of the hospitals that I've worked in, um, and most of the communities that I work in and most of, you know, the agencies I work in, a lot of the social workers are look like me. Okay. <laughs> you know, so they don't look like, you know, if they don't look like me, they might be Spanish. And if they're not Spanish, you have a trickle of white and white, you know, social workers in there. Um, and what I can say is I don't feel like the field is no longer dominated by white people. I just think that it depends on what state you're in okay. and what agency you work in. And that 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 determines on how many people you're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm starting to see more and more minority social workers, more and more minority clinicians and therapists. Um, I feel that if you are in a state that is that is more dominated by other people that does not look like you, you need to ensure that you have a seat at the table. 
Okay. And when I say that you have a seat at the table, um, don't be scared to express yourself. When you get at that table, make sure you're able to convey yourself in a calm and educated manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and be able to back it up. Like, I can take it to when I first left undergrad. Like, I got I got licensed um, within six months of me graduating um, from graduate school. And so once I got a job inside of a hospital, I sat at a table and I I looked, you know, I was a social worker on a team. You know, you had black psychiatrists that were also working at the hospital, but the psychiatrist I was under didn't look like me. My team didn't look like me. And so I was the newbie of the group. Um, And my thoughts and, you know, my feelings and what I thought of certain clients a lot of times would shift under the rug. And so that charged me to, you know, go back to what I learned in school. Yeah. Okay, let me let let me let me show you what I mean and let me take it to a peer let me get a peer review journal and let me show you what I mean. Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean. So so you have to be prepared to get pushback. And see, a lot of us aren't prepared to be pushed back. When we get pushed back, we get scared. We go, we, we, well, she said that I didn't, that it didn't make sense. You got to make it make sense to them sometimes. Mm. Make it make you know, sense. You know, I, I just was a social worker that wasn't scared. So, I, so if I tell you, I feel that this client doesn't need this diagnosis or what he is, what he's is displaying is not what you're thinking. And I know you may be a psychiatrist and I may be a social worker, but you know, when you look at an LCSW and a psychiatrist, we do the same thing except for we don't prescribe medicine mm-hmm. as an LCSW. So my thoughts are valid. Yeah. And I'm not going to let you sweep them under the rug. And so if you, you know, this discount my thoughts in the beginning, by the end of the day, you will, you will acknowledge my thoughts. I'll give you a journal. I'll give you a, a peer, periodic review. I'll, I'll give you whatever I need to sustain my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And see, a lot of people don't, don't feel like they should do that. Yeah. I ain't gonna lie When you said make it make sense That that was hard I like that. I like that You know what I'm saying Cause it's like You're right Cause like you know When we get pushed back We might Like I feel like We get pushed to a point Where it's like Alright well If I do too much Then I'm gonna lose my job Or You know Or Or like there's some people Like I know that has trauma From my childhood Mm-hmm. So they revert to like you know just shutting down and kind of just you know survival mode you know. But I feel like you know when you said make it make sense, it's like it's like you can't push me in no corner because I'm gonna make it make so much sense that you gonna have to respect it, you gonna have to feel it. I like and, that. and you also and you can always back it up with evidence based practice. And how do you back it up with evidence based practice? You have to go to periodic reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, there's all. I'm telling you, there's always some kind of study or research in a psychological journal of America, anything to kind of back up what you're what you're saying. It's yeah. just that are you are you willing to go look for it? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that was just the basis of the the. the of us having to do research in graduate school. That's true. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, because that is part of it. Like, you got to go find what you're building. You know, like you, you got to build your case. So mm-hmm. that's dope. Um, I mean, so sometimes you're gonna be able to build that case, and sometimes you're not. But you got to be able to do the work. Yeah, you know, like if you want it done, you gotta, you gotta, like you said, make it make sense. 
Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so, when you first hit me up, I went to your website. Um, can you explain what, uh, was it a pop and talk? Can you okay, so what pop and talk is? Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. I got you. Okay. So, how can I describe pop and talk? First of all, I want to let everybody know that. When I the concept of pop and talk, I mean, it just came up in what December 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, because before that, I had a class that I wanted to provide to the public and individuals and entrepreneurs and professionals on how to cope with your emotions effectively by building your brand. Um, and we know that there's always been like kind of like before now. Now everyone's on mental health. But yeah. back in 2017, it really wasn't as open to go talk to a therapist or come to um, a group setting and discuss how your emotions, your feelings affect the way you make money. Um, and so no one really were buying, was buying into it. And so I, I, was, I was speaking to different entrepreneurs and I was getting ready for different conferences um, for 2018. And one of, one of the persons that I was talking to that I was doing a conference, she was saying to me, well, you got to make it seem catchy and not so much as mental health. No one might not want to come to a class um, if it speaks and screams mental health. And so I was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I was thinking of different ways to bring the information and to make people want to actually come. Um, and I thought about the, you know, how we pop up and shop. Yeah. So, you know, people pop up and you shop. Well, now it's pop and talk. So now you popping up and you talking. So instead of just saying pop up, talk, pop and talk. Mm-hmm. So you're popping up and we're talking. Um, I like to to hold. I, it first started off as like a free, like kind of support group. For the f- first half of 2018, I was doing free support groups every month at a co-working space, and different entrepreneurs and professionals used to come. And I used to talk about depression, anxiety, how it interferes with your work. Um, and I got a couple people to come. I usually had at least four or five people yeah. within that support group, and I felt like four or five people and myself that it was actually good for me. Um, um, and then I started changing it to like every three months and hosting them. Like my one, my first paid event that I had after I changed it to Pop and Talk was during Minority Mental Health Month, which was in July. Yeah. And I, I covered certain, um, it was for women, um, but it was, I covered certain you know, diagnosis that aren't in the DSM-4. Like, I talked about superwoman syndrome, and I've discussed um, racial traumatic stress disorder and how it affects us as women um, and how we are double minorities and how it affects us and, you know, running our business, raising our children, living our day-to-day lives. Um, and I had different panelists that I knew personally that may have dealt with some of the things that I was I was discussing in regards to superwoman, racial trauma, distress, and those kind of things, and I shared different things about myself. Um, and so that's how Pop and Talk came about. 
I just really want to educate the public in regards to mental health and, and just thinking and just taking into account how you're thinking, your behaviors, your emotions affect how you engage with, with, your, with your community or engage with your clientele. Um, because a lot of times what we go through personally sometimes come out in our professional world and we actually don't think about it. I think that it affects the, how we make money. It affects yeah. the relationships we build. And as entrepreneurs and even as professionals, we have to do a lot of networking to be successful. Yeah. And if you're not able to network because of what's going on personally and your mindset is negative and your thought process is negative and your actions are negative, then you're not going to be able to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Pop and Talk is all about. Okay. And you do that just in the Atlanta area? Or are you Are you going like from state to state? Well, I'll, my goal is to go state to state. I do have my first pop and talk in Detroit, which is set to handle out in February twenty February twenty second in two thousand and nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do offer pop and talk to come state to state, but it's just you know a lot of people haven't gotten on to hosting them because I need for other individuals to say, oh okay, I think this is something I would like and host. So that's something I offer too. And I'm, I'm glad you did speak about my website. I'm working on bringing more of what I do to my website right now, you will find just my, you know, my therapy line mm-hmm. um, and my self-help book is on there right now. There's not a lot of information like about and who I am. There's no pictures of me. I'm just, it was just the, in the beginning stages. Like, I needed a website. Let me do the website. And I really just locked down the website before I actually had the vision because I didn't want anyone to have www.popandtalk. So I just locked down the domain before before um, I started. like So I locked down the domain within like a week of me coming out with Pop and Talk. So it's still growing. Yeah, I feel that sometimes, I mean, you got to move. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, yeah. let's do this first and the other stuff, you know, if I, if I do the work, it's going to come. I like that. Um, so you said you wrote a book, a self-help book? Yes, a self-help book. It's called The Glow Up Recovery Plan. The Glow Up Recovery Plan. Yes. All right. Um, so... And they can find this on your website? They can find it on my website, and mm. they can also find it on Amazon.com. Okay. Yeah, I'm and a, I'm currently uh, working on a, dig- a digital form of it. So. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to add the link to the um, in the description, you know, just so people can, you know, if they're interested, they can uh, click and, you know, get some, some glow up recovery. I like that. That's tight. Yeah, um, I kind of, you know, like when you're going through things in life and, I, and everybody gets taken back that it's only for women, but I've had male counterparts read the book and tell me like, okay, I relate to it because I'm a female. I like pink and I like purple. So mm-hmm. a lot of stuff is pink. A lot of stuff is purple. And I don't want to take it to where men be like, oh, this is not for me. I can't have a glow up. I think men can glow up as well as women can glow up. But a lot of times women go through a lot more than men. Mm-hmm. And we are easier to express our feelings and our emotions. You know, if you look at research, it says that when men go through things and are having tough times emotionally, it usually turns to like sex, yeah. alcohol, drugs, and it turns into anger. Um, and so all those things you can glow up from. Mm-hmm. Um, men have relationship problems just as well as women have relationship problems. So the glow of recovery plan is just based off you know, what I went through. It, it, it started as I was going through a breakup. And then it was things that I had to remind myself to do every day to make sure that I was being 100%. 
And it was things that I did to pull myself out of it because um, the, the breakup was kind of like hard for me. It was yeah. like a real relationship. You know, we we lived in a home together. You know, he had been a part of me and my daughter's life for a long time, and we broke up, and it was hurtful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you hurt, when you're hurt, and and take all the accountability of I was just leaving out of grad school. I was in a new state. I wasn't with like my traditional family, like my mom, my brothers, my dad, no one was in sight for me to talk to or me to go to. I couldn't move out of that space where I was that was hurting me. Like I had to learn to still live inside of a home that I had built with him. Yeah. And, you know, if your environment is not cohesive for your emotions or your behaviors, then, you know, you sometimes you get stuck. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of recovery is trying to get out of, you know, get out of your own way. Don't get stuck because sometimes you don't have the finances to move as quickly as you want. Like some people go through things and they no longer want to see stuff that reminds them of what was going on. Yeah. I didn't have the finances to move that quickly. Mm-hmm. I didn't have those resources. So I had to I had to stay in that, that environment. Yeah. And so, you know, I had to, you know. Glow up. I had to get back to that I forgot. Learn how to take a break. Learn how to ask for help. And those these are all chapters in a book. You know, learn how to forgive and let go. Learn how to mute how how to accept, you know, what I'm listening to and what I'm putting inside my body, how music affects my emotions. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not gonna sit in this house and listen to some sad songs by Beyonce, Whitney Houston, or Monica. I'm gonna listen to things that's going to make me feel upbeat and happy. And so those are that's what you will find in negative recovery. But okay, that's was I mean that's all good points. I know um, when I was coming up, I never really wanted to show that I was I needed any kind of help, you mm-hmm. know. And like um, I know um, my mom didn't even tell me this, but uh, my older brother was having his first daughter, and at the baby shower, she told him to it's it's okay to ask for help. You know, it's all right. And even though it's not my baby shower, I was like, God damn, that's, that is, you know, that's, you know what you, you're right. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't know, something is about the way we grew up. We just, you know, just being, you know, you always kind of want to do it yourself. It's like, nah, I won't do it myself. You know, like, I, I, you know, like I'll fall on this, you know, on this rock. If I have to, I just need to do it myself. But, you know, my mom, you know, her being a mental health, you know, practitioner, she was like, you know, it's okay to ask for help. And I was like, damn, that's, you know, and I, and I like how you said that, like, you know, like, in your process, you have to learn that, too, you know what I'm saying, like, it's all right, it's okay, you know what I'm saying, because when people give you advice, you know, it's not, it's not a bad idea not to take, or to take it, you know, if they, if they willing to help you, then, you know, maybe listen, yeah, you know, listen and figure it out, you know, so, yeah, that, because that was, I feel like ever since I've been doing that, like you know, like not being not being afraid to show that I like I'm hurting or that I'm weak. You know what I'm saying? Or like you know, just that I need some kind. Like you know, I'm gonna show everybody, but I show somebody. You know, like you know, like there's there's certain people I call. You know, what I'm saying when I need to talk. So yeah, and I feel like that and, was like a tradition. You know that I had to do. You know. And that's good. I like that you said it's certain people because in the book I discussed that sometimes it's not the point that. We don't like to ask for help. It's more of who we have asked for help or who we choose to ask for help for, from. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, 
in the past, I might have asked an individual for help, and when I ask them for their help, like, I break it down to, you ask somebody for help, and then when you ask them for help, they helped you, but it puts you in a worse situation yeah. than what you were in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Or you ask somebody for help, and then when you told them what was going on, they ridiculed you. Yeah. Or they shamed you. Or they made you feel less of a person because you're going through this and you shouldn't be going through this. And why are you doing this? And you you grown. Be independent. And now that makes you not want to ask them for help for certain things. Or, you know, you ask somebody for help and they told your business. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that makes you not want to ask people for help. And what I've seen, what I've experienced is, I don't say I'm not going to ask for help, but when it comes to certain things, if you've already did or reacted or said certain things to me, so when it's time for me to get help for that same thing, I may think twice in regards to asking you for help in regards to a certain situation versus another situation. Not saying I'm not going to ask you for help no more, but you can't help me with everything. Yeah. Because if I'm already feeling bad about a certain situation that's going on in my life that I need help with, I'm not going to bring it to you for you to make me feel worse. Mm -hmm. Because I I remember how you made me feel in the past. And that's not saying that I don't forgive you. Or that's not saying that I no longer trust you. That's just saying that I don't want to feel that way any any longer. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And so, you know, so it's not that I don't trust you. And see, sometimes you have individuals that may feel that now you don't trust them, now you don't want to be around them. No, it's not that. It's just that I just love myself more, that I'm not going to put myself through the, through the hurt or through the beat up of myself. Because sometimes when people say certain things to you, you know, words hurt. Yeah. You know, we used to say sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, words do hurt. Yeah. Words hurt. So if you said something to me in the past, and I might be over it, but mm-hmm. I just don't want to feel that way again. I just don't want to. I might not want a chance that if I bring it to you, you might say something that resembles what you said in the past. Yeah. Because I don't want to deal with that anymore. I just want to focus on a solution and get over it. I feel that. Yeah, because you right. I mean, and that's kind of. Man, I know, like, you know, back in the day, they was, you know, they was just trying to teach us resilience. But, man, some of the shit they were telling us was was a, was a trip. You know what I'm saying? Like, because mm-hmm. words words do hurt, you know? And we see that more than ever. Because now, like, we're in a situation, or we're in a generation with Twitter, and people's getting hurt by a lot of words, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, especially if you like a, if you like a big person, or a big person in the community, and... <clears throat> You know what I'm saying Whatever you do Gets reaction Shit I remember like um, I mean even like The little reaction I get on my uh, You know my Instagram account Causes anxiety Sometimes it's like shit You know like If somebody says something <laughs> That's you know And that's not even A lot of people You know that's like Maybe five or six people That's talking to me You know but if somebody Says something that's like Challenging me It does cause a little Like oh shit You know what I'm saying But I have the You know like I have the um, You know the presence of mind You know what I'm saying To stop and chill for a minute You know what I'm saying So So yeah So I, I'll only imagine You know say Like if you was getting Like a hundred You know Like hundreds And hundreds A day You know that's That, that, can, that can fuck with Somebody's brain You know Excuse my language but, uh, Yes <laughs> You know But uh, so I have a scenario um, I just want to Kind of uh, Just want to 
paint this picture. So I'm a new social worker, right? Coming from Portland. Mm-hmm. Coming from Portland. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm moving to Atlanta. I just got a job at a hospital. You know, one of the most busiest hospitals in in the area. What kind of mm-hmm. what kind of stuff would I should like? What kind of stuff should I expect on a day to day? Yeah. So if. If I put that in, in, in frame of mind and you go to busiest hospitals, and, and are we working in mental health or are we working in, um, are we working on mental health or are we working on the medical, medical team? Mental health. It's uh, mental health. So we can, if, if I put it in the mind, some of the busiest hospitals, I might want to say I would think out the two trauma hospitals because we get a lot of people, mm-hmm. the two trauma hospitals. Um, what you're going to expect is a lot. Are you expecting from the coworkers? No, no, no. From, from uh, the population I'm serving. Okay, the not, population not the coworkers. No. It's going to be a mixture. It's going to be a mixture. You're going to have um, the individuals who I would I would say you know the Social Security ones who receive Social Security. Okay. Um, and and what I say Social Security, you have the SSI and you have the SSID, mm-hmm. and the difference between the two to me is you have the SSI population who may have a mental health or physical disability, and they get um, Social Security benefits based off that, and it's like the base amount, you know, like the seven fifty amount. Yeah. Um, the one you know, like the minimum amount that the, I guess the government gives anybody who has any illness um, to live off of. Um, you'll have that. You'll have um, your substance abuse population. You'll have your homeless population that may get SSI. They may not have a roof over their head, but they might have spent all their check already mm-hmm. and they need a place to stay. Um you will also get the individuals who don't get, who or who don't have access or do not have um, insurance. Okay. Uh, so you you're gonna get a mixture, and it's not just African American. It's going to be all cultures, um, because you're also gonna get those who also have insurance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, because a lot of people don't know, according to the Mtala in hospitals, we are not allowed to turn anyone down. So you're going to get a mixture of people. You're going to get people. I mean, I've, I've serviced individuals, um, uh, Caucasians who, who fathers are lawyers and they are, are you know, I had relationships with the governor, have threatened me um, with the governor or told me, oh, because you're African-American, um, you don't really know anything. Mm. You know, I, I've dealt with that. And then I've dealt with the individuals who are middle class African-American families who may make more than enough to sustain their household, but not enough to get the actual help they need. Mm. Um, so it, 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 it just varies. You're going to see everything. Okay. All right, yeah, because I, I, I'm like I said, I'm just curious to know. Like, uh, I remember um, my old um, Phil liaison. He he did social work in New Orleans, and I'm just kind of curious how social work looks in you know in, in our country like, as a whole. You know, like I know here in Portland, in Oregon, you know, um, there's a lot of homelessness um, in a- anywhere you go, uh, whether you're in the rural community or you're in the inner city community. It don't matter. We we got a homelessness problem in the state. Uh, meth. You know, like talk about substance abuse. The one that that does it is meth. You know, um, that's a big one. And and really just like um, 
it's expensive to live in the city of Portland and around the area. So there's a lot of poverty, you know, and a lot of people that that are making it but not you know what I'm saying like but not making it. You feel me? So it's so yeah, it's it's a lot of yeah, it's just a lot of stuff like our our economics is kind of out of whack and I feel like that that plays into a lot of our social work here. And I think that you know we're oversaturated here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we have resources, but it's not enough resources to serve the population. Yeah. There's a long waiting list. There's long waiting list for um, income-driven housing. Long waiting list, you know, for um, just substance abuse. You know, there's it's not enough resources to meet the population's needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think more programs are coming up, but I think that you know sometimes they don't just have enough resources to 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 service the population, especially when it comes down to mental health. Yeah. I mean, you can find it, and but sometimes the resources that you need may not be in the area that you're actually living in. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, because yeah, especially here, like if you live in a rural community, um, you know, like you might live in a small town, and the biggest town with three programs might be thirty miles away. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely something. So it seems like it's a, it's a reoccurring theme. Uh, people just need this is not enough for the people that need. You know. Yeah, and then the federal government sometimes they do provide the resources, but then they leave it up to the state on how they allocate the funds yeah. for the resources. Mm-hmm. And so the resources look different from state to state. And then you got people that migrate to Atlanta and feel like, okay, well, when I was in Detroit, we had X, Y, and Z, but Michigan State allowed certain things yeah. to happen. You know what I'm saying? That's how they allocated their funds. And Georgia don't allocate their funds that way, so it looks different here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's another thing, another misconception that the population doesn't understand. And so that's when I went, when me as a social worker, I come in and I explain to them, like for instance, um, when you have, for for when you have Social Security, like um, I believe Medicare has this um, policy in regards to how, um, in some states, they allow like. Your caregiver, they pay, they give a subsidy for your caregiver. Yeah. And they, you know, and it doesn't say what the caregiver is. Some states, the caregiver can actually be um, an individual family member. Mm. So if you have an individual family member who's not able to work because you have certain needs that they need to stay in the home with you, some states pay a subsidy to the actual caregiver, which is the family member, right? Yeah. But in Georgia, they don't pay. A subsidy to the family member. Mm. So, say if you are a family member that has to care for your, I say your parent, your sick parent, yeah, who has to, and you have to be home most of the time to care for them. You don't get a subsidy for that. What they do will give you is they have like I believe it's called um, source, okay. and you have to you have to get that service, mm-hmm. and they pay for it agency, a caregiver agency to come in your house to sit with the individual between six and seven hours. And they pay, sometimes they pay for housing, a certain amount of money for housing Mm -hmm. and those kind of things. But, you know, as a caregiver, that means for six to seven hours, like, where am I going to find a job, you know, in regards to traffic? They are only going to be there for six and seven hours. Yeah. How can I actually work? For six and seven hours. Yeah, for real. With the traffic of Atlanta, Georgia, 
Ooh. I have to get up, ride. I gotta wait. You only got six to seven hours. Most jobs that you let you work a ship, a ship is eight hours. Yeah, automatic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so it's really like unproportionate, and it's not really thought about mm-hmm. because how can I actually survive? Yeah. If I'm only allowed to give six to seven hours a day. Yeah. How is there been like any kind of challenge to that policy? Because it sounds very. Um, uh, disproportionate, you know, because like if you're a person who's wealthy, of course you don't, you're not worried about that. But if you're a person that needs to work and do, you know, do it, you know, and you know, you know, make an honest living, that just sounds a little discriminatory. So is there like has been any kind of like is there any been a push, you, you know, saying to change that? I don't think there has been any pushback about that. Um, I mean, I've dealt with um, families that have had that happen, and for the most part, the individual does not work. Mm-hmm. The individual does not work. I mean, I've had, I'm not saying all individuals don't work, but I just know that some families have not worked um, until maybe will be considered that that the family member they're caring for is no longer, you know, they what we call expired or no longer living, mm-hmm. and they just don't work or they find other ways, means to get around. You know, I've, I myself have written letters to to the electrical company, the gas gas and light company, or the water company just to have their water or their things extended because they're not making enough income to pay their bills. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, you know, what I can say. Mm-hmm. In regards to that, I haven't seen anything charged. Maybe, maybe I don't know and I'm not aware of it, but, you know, I haven't seen anything charged. And then a lot of times I try to take myself away from a news. I think you posted something about that um, the other day in regards to news because sometimes oh, yeah. I don't watch the news. Um, <laughs> I don't want to hear about everybody being, you know, um, I don't want to hear about those kind of things sometimes. I don't want to hear about carjackings. I don't want to hear about robberies. I don't want to hear about home invasions all the time. And that's a lot of times what our news is plagued with. And yeah. I just don't want to hear it sometimes. Well, I know that that's definitely like the news here. It's like you might get for twenty every twenty minutes of bad to get about seven minutes of so like oh this happy news you know what I'm saying even you know <laughs> you know yeah so a lot of times I, I'll turn it off because it's just it's it's, it's it's not really what you need you know what I'm saying to start your day it's like damn I gotta hear about this again and then, and then it, it then it plays with a person's psyche yeah because now you always on car oh for real you know. <laughs> Always on guard. And a, for a person like me coming from the urban environment, I'm always on guard anyway. Mm-hmm. Because I'm from, we couldn't consider the hood, so I'm always on guard anyway. And I'm always watching and seeing what's going on. And I'm always observing my surroundings. I don't need to see that another car, another person's car was taken when he was getting gas. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, like that's I too have, normal. Like, <laughs> you know, that's too normal. It's like, damn, I can't even get my gas, you know? So, yeah, I feel you on that one. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so uh, let's get to some DSM talk. I know you want to speak a little bit about, um, you know, like you said, your go to uh, thing is adjustment theory. Um, Could you go into a little bit of that and explain it to to our listeners, you know, so they can get a kind of better understanding if they don't know already? Okay, so I, I know me and you just discussed adjustment disorder. Um, mm. And I, like I said, um, being that the podcast is considered called Hip Hop Social Worker, I think that a lot of times, I, I think we had a discussion, I said a lot of times I feel that um, 
as individuals, we come, sometimes we're coming from not having enough mm -hmm. to then having more than enough. Yeah. And it's an adjustment period. Um, and I think that, you know, for us to rightfully adjust, it takes about six months to a year to adjust to our new position. Yeah. And I did relate that to, um, People in hip hop and R and B, all the Cardi B's, the little babies, um, and I, I, I referenced Young Jeezy's song. I used to have nothing, now I have a whole lot of everything. Yeah, you know, now I come through stunting, and everybody <laughs> know my name. So you know, before I was a nobody, now I'm somebody. Mm -hmm. And you know, that I used to do when I was a nobody and nobody knew me may not be acceptable now in society's eyes because now everybody's looking at me. And I think that all like you know, hip hop and R&B artists are charged to be role models and I feel like we that's, that's a lot on one person when you are coming into a new career yeah. and so what I what, I, what the DSM-5 does have is called the adjustment disorder um, adjustment disorder is triggered by stress or a common experience that a person experiences and it causes psychological emotional or behavioral Distress. Um, it is, it, it, to me, it's, it, it's coming by divorce, breakup, you know, going away to college, getting a new job, but unemployment. Those are things that categorize adjustment disorder. It's the least restrictive and the least strenuous diagnosis a therapist or a psychiatrist can give you. Um, it's usually. It's usually for it to be diagnosed, you have to have seen these this distress, or it has to have um, an interference with your level of daily functioning within three months of the onset. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just basically what the adjustment disorder is. Like it, it's it's brought on by stress. It's brought on by stress by different things that you go through in life, just common things. And yeah. being an entertainer is, you know, it's becoming more common these days. Like, <laughs> so, you know, and becoming an entertainer is not something that is just, you know, something out of the ordinary, but it is still out of the ordinary, but it happens, you know, a lot. Yeah. And it's happened to a lot of individuals who are coming out of urban communities. And so the stress of, you know, now I have a lot of money. Um, now I'm the one that made it out of my family. Now everyone's going to be asking or looking to me for looking at me for help. For help. Or, you know, when I was when I was before I became an entertainer and somebody disrespected me, I can walk up to you yeah. and say what I wanted to say. But now that I'm in a certain kind of light, that me walking up to you saying what I want to say or reacting the way I re I'm used to reacting, it's not seen appropriate. It's not the norm. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, we fell as society, we fell to realize that some of our behaviors that we were, we were, it was taught and it was normal for us to do this. Like it was normal for me to walk up to you, put my finger in your face that made me mush you. But now I can't mush you. Yeah. And so that's what I see adjustment disorder is. And, and, and adjustment disorder causes anxiety. It causes depression. You're not able to cope the way that you're normally able to cope, especially if you're you're dealing with a whole bunch of things all at the same time. Your coping mechanisms have now went way below the threshold. Yeah. And I okay. think that um, a lot of times that it, within the hip-hop community, within the entertainment community, 
because um, those are also entrepreneurs, even in the sports, in the sports, you know, athletics. We need to have therapists there. The managers need to have therapists on on call, on deck to discuss certain things. Like, okay, you're about to go to this event. We know that this person has been, you know, egging you on. If you see this person, be prepared not to act this way or not to behave in this manner because we no longer are at home and you're no longer on the block and you can't do certain things. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, definitely, like you said about, um, you know, you can't just walk up and mush somebody, you know what I'm saying? Now you got to figure a way how to handle you that anxiety, you know? Because even though, because mm-hmm. even though, I mean, it might it might not be the most pro-social thing in some people's eyes, but it's like, I mean, you confront somebody and mushing them, I mean, that can ease some st- some stuff, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, I mean really, like, mm-hmm. it, it can, you know? So, and if you can't do that, and you're not really coping of, you know, like, you're not really, you know... There ain't nobody there to help you cope with your outbursts and, you know, like in your, um, you, you know, like your kind of ways of doing things, then you will, you will suffer, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And I, I, or nobody that properly prepared you for what you're about to walk into. Yeah. Because I feel like even sometimes like in the ther- therapy sessions, you know, you role play, you discuss certain things. Like I, I remember discussing with some of my, one of my clients, a couple of my clients. Okay. So let's discuss how you going to react. If you see this person again, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Sometimes you have to sit down and say, okay, self, um, I'm about to walk into this and I may see this person that really pisses me off. So let me prepare myself mentally to not engage in any kind of aggressive or hostile kind of interaction between this person. Cause sometimes you got to prepare yourself for stuff. Just like you prepare yourself to take a test. Sometimes you prepare yourself for an interview. You have to prepare yourself to walk into an environment with a person that you know that you have a prior disagreement with mm-hmm. or you prior had kind of words with. And a lot of times we not they're not doing that now. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I know like in adjusting, I mean, you know, for anybody listening, it, it can be small adjustments too. Like, uh, you know, like... Um, you know, and I was putting this podcast together, and now I've got a few, like, you know, in, like I said, interactions and so on social media and stuff, and people say whatever they want to say, and kind of, you know, I say what, you know, and it's, I, I had to really adjust to, you know, to that, even though, like, <laughs> even though, like, it's not, like I said, it's not a lot, it's not, it's not, I'm not going to try to gap stuff up, it's not a lot, but I'm saying, but it's more than what I'm used to, and something that, that I'm not used to, you know what I'm saying, so mm-hmm. I know, like, a lot of us in this podcast community, you know, like, want to get known and want to get blow up, you know, because we've seen a lot of, you know, podcasts, you know, take people to good places that we think. But just a kind of FYI, we got to be really ready. Like, are we ready? Because, like, in a lot of our podcasts, you know, say we talk about, you know, we kind of we kind of gossip on a lot of these things. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if you see that person and you blew up to a point where, you know, saying they might have heard you, you know what I'm saying? Like, how are you going to adjust to that? You know, that kind of notoriety, you know? So, it's something to think about for, you know, for my podcasters out there, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of, you know, on your next little... um you know, like, just be careful what you want, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> because it might happen, and you might be in a position where, you know, it might be in, uh, not the best spot for you, you feel me? Yeah, and I I completely can relate to that, because, you know, like I said, I I released myself to a book early this year, and then my mother was having a retirement party. This is a perfect example, 
was having a retirement party. Yeah. And I can say, like, I don't usually go home as often as I do since I moved here in Atlanta in 2012. And I usually do not go home back to Jersey that often. So a lot of my family didn't see me a lot. And so, you know, I think I'm just going home for my mom's retirement party and it's just nothing. But because, you know, the book is out and all my family came, I mean, from Virginia, it was a lot of my family. Yeah. And everybody was like in my face and talking to me. It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot for me. And I'm like, I'm just a regular on gay. I'm the same on gay that grew up. Why y'all asking me about books? Why y'all asking yeah. me about this? Like we just supposed to be having a barbecue. Like, yeah, I'm I, not. I'm not here to you know to do like a brand committee. You know what I'm saying? Like no, you know what I'm saying. I'm not here for that. And I just felt like you know I'm just here to just relax and relate. But then sometimes I, I had to realize that I'm not the same person I was when I left New Jersey. Yeah, I'm starting on a whole nother journey. And so like some of my cousins was in my room in the room, and I was like, I it brought me to tears because now I'm like. Now I'm realizing that I'm not the same person. I can't react the same way. I can't do some of the same things. Like, I, you know, I, and and that's a lot to to take all at one time because they really, I mean, I'm just doing what makes me happy. This just is my career and I like doing it and it's my purpose. And I just feel like I'm just moving along in my career. But and other people, when they're looking at you from the outside in, they're not seeing it the same way you're seeing it. Yeah. That's true, and, you know. And, you know, and, and that's what I say, like, it doesn't matter what, that's why I say entrepreneur, because the entrepreneur is a big field. Mm-hmm. You know, being, having my private practice fit into an entrepreneur. Somebody who's a nurse who might have a home care service comes into entrepreneur. You know, with you with this podcast, that comes into the entrepreneur. Like, all these are entrepreneurs type of endeavors. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't take in consideration how it affects us, you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, and just psychologically. It doesn't, we don't think how it affects us. Yeah. Um, and I think you don't realize it until you go somewhere to where you use, like, you, like for instance, for me, I didn't realize it until how, when I went back to my hometown and, and me and my own, within my own family, yeah. like, you know, so that so I know if I felt that way, and I'm a I'm a I'm not the big fish. I'm a little fish. Yeah, <laughs> is what I'm not the big fish yet. Um, I'm a little fish now. So if I felt that way as at my current state, then imagine how I would feel when I become the big fish. So if I'm not preparing myself for that, and for the long run and the ultimate goal, then you know if you, I'm not gonna be able to control it. I'm not gonna be able to handle it. Yeah. And things are going to go out of whack. And that's something to think about. You know what I'm saying? Like, this, like while it's coming in, just kind of dial it back and say, okay, how's this feeling? What's going on? Do I really want to blow up that much? Or do I want to kind of like find the middle ground to where I can kind of do my things? To, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of ask yourself questions. You know, like, you know, just ask yourself questions. Because before, you know, when I used to talk shit, it was different. But now, like, I realize that everything I say... And I put the link on, you know what I'm saying, my Facebook. Anybody who's on my Facebook, can, they have access to it. So so sometimes I think, like, oh, shit, like, I wonder if I said this and that person heard it. And, you know, like, I wonder if they think about it. You know what I'm saying? Cause I, because I say a lot of stuff that, like, there, there's a few friends on my, you know, like, you, you know, my Facebook list that probably don't agree with a whole lot of it. But at the same time, I said it. So now you know how I feel, you know what I'm saying? And if it's a problem, I guess, you know, we can, you know, so we can figure it out. But it's just stuff I think about, like, shit, like. 
you know, was it too much or was it not enough? Or, you know, it's, just, it's always something I'm thinking about. Like, it, I, just, I just always, you know. But, uh, so, um, how do you practice self-care? Uh, for me, self-care, I mean, um, how I practice self-care is doing certain things um, that help me feel feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. So, self-care for me, it, it might be different to, to everyone else. It's more of um, um, me doing the regular feminine care type things that I do about myself, like making time to go get my hair done, making time, you know, to get my nails done. Those kind of things is like what I consider my self-care. Yeah. Okay. Uh, You know, like having a massage, getting a facial, doing the little things that I do for myself, um, even down to maybe taking a hot bath with some essence salt mm. or just using some sea salt scrub or something like that. Those are little things to me as self-care. Um, that's what I consider self-care is big, um, eating right, you know, just making sure I'm taking care of myself because when I walk out the door and I go to work, as my my daughter, she's 11, she likes to always say, like, you know, when when I graduated, I think she was like maybe six or seven or something around that time. Yeah. And she was young. And so she would say to me, like, oh, mom, you're a social worker. You fix other people's problems. <laughs> and so when you, when, when you hear someone saying that like that, she right. I do fix other people's problems or I help them find solutions to their problems. But, you know, I have my own problems as well. So yeah. now I have to make sure I take care of myself and I'm doing the necessary things that I need to do to ensure that I'm healthy when I walk out that door to help other people. Yeah. Cause we can't help others if we if we got our own, you know. What I'm saying I mean we can, but it might be, you know, what I'm saying I might be double the work. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So uh, I appreciate you for you know for you know for willing to uh, sit down with me and explain uh, you know just a different type of social work. It was great. Um, I, I learned some new things. Uh, you want to go ahead and plug whatever you got going on? Um, yeah, I'll plug what I'm what I got going on. So like I said. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, it is I have a personal account, which is no longer personal. Mm-hmm. Um, a Anderson, <laughs> a Anderson thirty two. Um, I also have um, my business page that you can also follow me on, which is Anderson Consultant. In there's the letter N in counseling. I know it's very long, but Anderson Consultant in counseling. You can find updates about that. Um, I also have another page. It's Pop and Talk, P-O-P-N-T-A-L-K. Um, the next event that I have coming up, the first one out of 2019, if you're in Detroit, um, please come to my Pop and Talk, which is in Detroit. Um, follow all the Instagram pages or on Instagram for further information. Mm-hmm. And then you also have my website, which is www.popandtalk.com. Um, I, if you're in the Atlanta area and you're looking for a relatable, real therapist, it's not only going to give you therapy, but also therapy, like I like to say. Ooh, therapy, um, damn. Yeah, therapy. <laughs> <Okay>. Hey. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I like, to, I like to consider myself as a therapeutic friend. You know, you always got that one friend that's going to tell you the truth. Yeah. So a lot of times we don't have that one friend that gets going to tell you the friend, tell you the truth. There it's going to be like, okay, I understand where you're coming from, but you was wrong. All right. You know, um, for those who are looking to see me or want to have a consultation or 
reach out to me for therapy. You can find me at 1093 Cleveland Avenue, Atlanta, Georgia, 30344. Um, the phone number for my office is 404-768-2218. I'm, at, I'm located at the Center of Neuropsychiatry. All right. Well, like I, pre- I appreciate you. And, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, being a guest on my podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right.